Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. 90 days. That's all the time Marylanders get each year to make their voices heard in Annapolis, our state's capital. As legislators work to pass bills into law, every session, the ACLU of Maryland plays both offense and defense. As our public policy team fends off attacks from lawmakers seeking to undermine our civil liberties, and they also work to support lawmakers who are fighting to protect and strengthen our rights and American values. Last session, the ACLU of Maryland submitted testimony on over 200 bills on tons of civil liberties issues. This year, we'll be working on six priority issues that we think had the best chance of both passing and had the biggest impact on Marylanders, particularly Marylanders of color and LGBTQ plus people. Our priorities are equity for Maryland public school children, the Trust Act to defend the rights of immigrants in our communities, equality for public services for women who are exiting the criminal legal system, transparency in policing, the right to vote behind bars, and due process for children entangled in the criminal so-called justice system. While these are the ACLU's priority issue areas, we will still be working on over 40 civil liberties issues like drug policy, fair housing, privacy, reproductive rights, workers' rights, and so much more. Today we'll be joined by Tony Holness, the ACLU of Maryland's Public Policy Director, Joe Spielberger, our Public Policy Counsel, and Justin Nally, our Education Policy Analyst, to talk about our priority issue areas and, of course, how you can get involved. Tony, Justin, Joe, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Amber. So, Justin, can you talk to me about what the General Assembly is and why is it so important? So the General Assembly is the legislative body of Maryland, and it's important because this is the time where all the laws in the state get created. So the legislative session begins each year in January, and it lasts for 90 days until April. So during this time, all of our elective officials head down to our state capitol to introduce bills with hope that becomes law. This includes where your tax dollars go, education, criminal justice reform. So it's important to know what's going on that can affect your day to day. Can y'all just talk to us about like, you know, a little bit about Annapolis. Um, there's a lot of mystery behind it, particularly when I first went there. It was, you know, it was wrapped in secrecy. I didn't know where to go. Can you just give our listeners a little bit more insight, you know, based on your infinite amount of knowledge of the General Assembly? So, you know, our our government uh, is open in many ways, but there are a lot of parts of the General Assembly process that is that's that are not open. Um we know that every bill has to have a hearing, but not every bill gets a vote, right? That's a process that is just really not very democratic. Um, the chair of the committee ultimately gets a decision about whether a bill comes to a vote or if it goes in the drawer. Like, that's not really a, something that's voted on or transparent. Some of it is is not good governance, but... A lot of the like procedural challenges, I think, in Annapolis are, are born out of how short the legislative time frame is, right? So they've got 90 days to pass all the bills. Like, how transparent can you really be in that <laughs> period of time if you're, you know, so many bills are introduced and they've got to get everything through. You know, it's, they, they ought to be transparent, but it is a little bit of a mad dash. The General Assembly is not this huge, like, monolith, right? Like, there's some committees that are so transparent when they're voting, they actually let you know as a witness that they're voting on the bill and they invite you up to speak if they have questions about the bill. Uh, there are other committees that really 
you know, by law, they're required to make the voting sessions open, but they discourage it in in different ways. So, you know, from committee to committee and even between the House and the Senate, uh, things are things operate differently. We spend a lot of time in the House Judiciary Committee and the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, and most of the bills in front of those committees are some of the most controversial, the most impactful, and that really affect people on a very human level. So we've heard survivors of human trafficking, gun violence, child abuse, and all of these really sensitive issues get up in public and share their stories because it's so important to get those stories out and allow those voices to be heard. Yeah, when you have people who are willing to be vulnerable in front of the committees and share their experiences, it really just shows how uh, this work can really make a difference um, and affect people's day-to-day lives. So it's it's difficult to share your story when it's, it's something that, as Joe says, sensitive issue, but um, it's needed. And we, we need everybody that we can down in Annapolis to share their story and talk to their legislators to, to make sure that we can make Maryland a great state. Absolutely. I mean, nothing, laws should serve people's interests, right? They should not be negotiated and voted on and you know enacted in in a vacuum right you know and it's really important that our legislators hear how the decisions they're making every single day several times a day for 90 days are going to impact the people that they serve so you know you've you know folks have got to get out um and you know it's a part of the aclu's mission to make sure that people who are closest to the injustice are are heard right that is a part of what democracy means and what power in people means for us. I just returned from a three-day convening about solitary confinement in D.C. and coordinated with advocates and activists from across the country who are working on their own solitary campaigns and looking to Maryland for lessons uh, to help them as well. So the work that we do at the state level is also having a nationwide impact as well on a lot of our critical issues. Tony, there's been a lot of changes from last session to this session, particularly in terms of leadership. Can you talk to me about some of those changes and what do we think might be possible this session that wasn't as possible last session? Yeah, so to say there's been a lot of changes is almost an understatement. I mean, in uh, virtually decades, we now have a new Speaker of the House, Adrienne Jones, who hails from Baltimore County. She's the first black speaker as well as the first female speaker that we have in Maryland. Yes. Uh, we, I know. <laughs> we also have the first um, Senate president that we've had in a long time, and that's going to be Senate, Senator Bill Ferguson, who has secured the Democratic nominee. He's not officially sworn in yet, but we fully expect that's going to happen in January. What's also exciting is that the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee uh, will have a new chair. That will be Senator Will Smith, who's from District 20 in Montgomery County, um, and uh, very likely a new vice chair because he used to be the vice chair. So JPR is the acronym for the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee. Uh, In both the House and the Senate, there are standing committees that review bills and vote on them and decide which bills are going to pass. So Judicial Proceedings is the committee in the Senate that oversees the criminal justice bills, the non-discrimination bills, housing, renters' rights bills, really a whole lot of the ACLU's priorities go through that committee. So there, we see a world of opportunity as far as some of our bills go, um, and so we're really excited.
Joe, we've heard from members of our immigrants community that they often feel like they can't um, talk to police officers. Can you tell us a bit about why they might be feeling that way? So immigrant communities across Maryland are increasingly threatened by unjust immigration policies. And many people don't trust police because of the understanding that they'll likely be questioned about their immigration status and possibly separated from their families. So, for instance, earlier this year, a Frederick County resident, Sarah Medrano, was driving with her daughter and grandchildren when she got pulled over. The officers lied about the reason that they pulled her over. Um, They said it was a broken taillight on her car. It turned out that that was not the case. And then proceeded to interrogate her about her immigration status and detained and held her illegally to try to get ICE to come and pick her up. So while she was eventually released, this is just one of many stories that show why members of the immigrant community don't feel safe talking to police because they don't feel like police are there to protect them, but view them as threats instead. The Trust Act would do two main things to better clarify how state and local police can assist with federal immigration enforcement. So first, it would prevent local law enforcement from profiling someone based on suspected immigration status, ask about immigration, citizenship, or place of birth during regular routine police encounters. And second, it would ensure that when someone's eligible to be released from jail or prison, that person can't continue to be held on the basis of an immigration detainer request to wait for ICE to show up, which is a practice currently in place, but it's unconstitutional. And you know, Joe, one of the things that some of the opponents to the Trust Act often say is that it will undermine public safety and you know inhibit police officers' ability to make the community safe. Can you actually tell us why that is a misconception and what will the Trust Act do to actually help improve public safety? The Trust Act is needed to make sure that Maryland's law enforcement, personnel, and resources are used to further our state's public safety needs and not the federal government's. National studies that include Maryland have shown that counties that don't cooperate with ICE have lower crime rates and consistently stronger economies across the board. But most importantly, the Trust Act would make it much more likely for immigrants to report crimes and seek police help or protection, particularly for people who experience discrimination at work and especially for survivors of violence. So this would make sure that law enforcement focuses their time and resources on legitimate public safety concerns to keep all Marylanders safe. On the guise of public safety, one of the things that we're really excited to be working on, unfortunately for you know so many years, is uh, reforming the Maryland Public Information Act. Um, you know, Tony, can you talk to me about just as a baseline, what is the Maryland Public Information Act? The Maryland Public Information Act, or the PIA, is the part of our state law that governs which documents the government has to give to the public and which documents the government can keep private. Uh, It's basically the state version of the FOIA, which is the federal uh, law that governs document release. And, you know, why are families, particularly families of police abuse, fighting so hard to make sure that the Maryland Public Information Act is reformed? So unlike the majority of states across the country, the Maryland Public Information Act uh, requires that information about uh, police misconduct complaints cannot be released to the public. So if you file a complaint of police misconduct in the state of Maryland, the only thing you can ever find out is 
whether the officer was disciplined and what that discipline was. You don't get to find out what depth of investigation the department conducted, whether they looked at body camera footage, contacted any witnesses, whether they did anything at all. And so that's really uh, inappropriate. Um, and it really speaks to the lack of transparency and trust that we see communities uh, having with their law enforcement departments today. How will reforming the Maryland Public Information Act help to ensure that there is more police transparency? So we're working with our partners to reform the PIA so that departments actually can release some of this information. The current law actually bars chiefs and police departments from being responsive to communities when they want answers about how discipline was handled. We are seeking a reform that would allow for some information to be released. Actually, Tony, can you talk to us about who are some of our partners and community members and community leaders who are fighting with us on this, um, on this bill? There is such a broad and diverse and huge, quite honestly, uh, group of advocates working on this issue. Folks from across the state, uh, from the Eastern Shore to Montgomery County to Baltimore City, Prince George's County, uh, are working to see this reform pass. We also have a lot of support from within the law enforcement community itself. The Hispanic National Law Enforcement Association supports this bill, as well as the United Black Officers Association and LEAP, which is the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Because uh, what we've heard is that officers are, there are many officers, and particularly officers of color, who are also invested in building community trust and investing in this kind of transparency. And of course, there are all the usual suspects who are, have been working with us tirelessly on police advocacy or police reform uh, for years and years. So Justin, education is a Maryland state constitutional right. That's why we've been fighting so hard for so many years to ensure that every student has a high quality public education. Many of our listeners might have heard the current commission and you know might have heard also that the current commission, they you know finish their recommendations and they you know get passed off to the General Assembly. Can you talk to us about um, a little bit about those recommendations and answer the question of does the current commission recommendations go far enough to ensure that race and wealth equity are incorporated fully in the current commission recommendations? the current commission needs to go even further on race and wealth equity issues. So the commission has been around for about three years, four years, and they're now wrapping up and sending their recommendations to the General Assembly. So in the recommendations, there are increases of funding to all the schools in Maryland, and they're redoing the whole education system. Now, we know the funding piece is well overdue, but the counties that have a majority of black population or population of color, or even with low wealth, we know that these counties need to be prioritized when that funding comes down. This means making sure that we have counselors, music teachers, science teachers in all of our schools. Recently, Maryland just released their report card for each school in the state, and there are many schools in the state that are failing. So we want to make sure that with these current recommendations, all schools in the state have what they need and the resources so that they are passing and passing under the state's um, report card. Education is not just about, you know, the teachers and the counselors and everyone who is in the school. It's also about the school facilities themselves. I, I don't think that kids can learn if, you know, they're freezing in, in classroom or they're sweating because there's no air conditioning in the right. school. What are some things we're going to do to improve the school facilities across the state of Maryland? We cannot learn in certain conditions, and it's unfair to ask students to be in certain conditions. So ACLU has advocated for school funding for construction and school buildings for over 15 years. And as we know, in Baltimore City, we have some of the oldest infrastructure in the buildings within the state. And we know that students need to have a comfortable environment to learn in. 
Um, I've been in some of these buildings, especially in Baltimore City, where the kids are in, in classrooms with their jackets on. And we know as adults, we want to ask ourselves to go to work in those conditions. So we want to make sure that students have um, what they need and the teachers have what they need to learn in these environments. For this legislative session, we know that the first bill in session is going to be a bill that will introduce um about $2 billion in funding for school, for some of the largest school districts in Maryland. So we'll be paying close attention to that because Prince George's, Baltimore City, Montgomery, those larger counties are going to be receiving some of this funding. We want to make sure that it gets allocated and correctly. So, you know, I know that $2 billion sounds like a lot of money to our listeners, but is that enough money to really make a dent in the problem or is more needed? More is needed, absolutely. So it will start to address some of the issues as far as air conditioners in schools, maybe fixing a couple heating systems. But overall, these are decaying school buildings across the state, especially in Baltimore City. So there's more that's needed, and we'll continue to advocate and fight for more funding. So Justin, speaking of funding, can you talk to us about how the state of Maryland is actually funding discrimination in Maryland schools? The right to education is in the Constitution, and all all students, regardless of their citizen status, they are they have access to public education in the state. So the state actually funds many programs where the public dollars actually go to private schools, and these private schools can actually pick and choose their student population. We feel that these schools should not be using taxpayer dollars to fund and discriminate against the student body. We want to make sure that we remove the public funding out of private education so that the public dollars go to where it's supposed to go and fund our public schools. So the program is called Boost, and this is a program that's been around for several years. It gets about $6.5 million allocated out of the public dollars. And there's also going to be some issues coming up with the current commission because some of the pre-K providers will be private providers will possibly receive some public funding as well. So we want to make sure that um, if we are funding our schools, we're funding the public schools, but if we're giving money to private schools, that no discrimination is occurring and they have to follow the same rules as well. And some of the people that we've heard from who feel like they have been discriminated um, through this program? We've heard about discrimination happening in a number of contexts. Most recently, we heard about a family with two moms and the son was discriminated against because there was a Mother's Day tea and only one mom was allowed to, to participate. That happened in Prince George's County. But we've also heard anecdotally about discrimination against kids with disabilities um, and even teachers. We've heard about several instances of discrimination happening in these private schools that get public funding from uh, LGBT discrimination to discrimination on the basis of disability. Uh, So we know that the discrimination is happening. And so our goal is first to zero out this program because our public schools are underfunded and any dollar that we have towards education should go to our public schools. But also, if the program is going to stay in place, these schools need to be complying with the same non-discrimination laws as our public schools. And another issue that is you know, facing our Maryland public schools is, um, and unfortunately, it's, it's issues facing the entire nation, is the school-to-prison pipeline. Stopping the school-to-prison pipeline is necessary. Yes. What are some um, policy positions that we'll be taking to help address this? We want to ensure that to stop the school to prison pipeline, um, that practices in schools promote restorative approaches in the classroom uh, so that 
students feel safe and welcomed. You know, restorative approaches means that any issues that are had are repaired and restored. And we know that the school to prison pipeline adversely affects students of color, black students and students with disabilities. So that's one way to really stop that pipeline and cut it off. Justin, you know, additionally, um, how can a bill based in the current commission recommendation support resortive practices and a positive school climate? Well, the bill for the Kerwin recommendations, there are a lot of additional supports for students. Um, this particularly for mental health and health counselors, guidance counselors, and counseling services. But to build on these recommendations, we have to make sure that we hold the state and the schools accountable for implementing some of the restorative approaches that we're starting to see across the state and that some schools are actually practicing themselves. Along with the implementation of some of these restorative approaches and making sure that they're in code and they're in law, we have to continue to collect data on suspensions, students that are referred to law enforcement. And as we continue to see the restorative approaches pop up in our schools, these incidents should begin to decline. Joe, we at the ACLU believe that in order to make a more perfect Maryland, we need to seriously reform um, many aspects of the prison system here in the state of Maryland. Can you talk to me about some of the challenges that women who um, are formerly incarcerated face as they you know, exit the criminal justice system and begin to rebuild their lives? Well, in addition to facing many of the same challenges that men do, like accessing jobs, housing, training, and other resources, women also face additional unique challenges, particularly women of color who we know are disproportionately represented in our prison system. For instance, women are more than twice as likely than men to be incarcerated for a nonviolent offense. They serve less time in general, and the vast majority of women in prison are primary or sole caretakers of their children. So that's why it's so important that women have access to pre-release services that are specifically targeted to their needs. And actually, Joe, what is a pre-release facility, just so we're all on the same page? So a pre-release facility is a separate facility at the lowest security level for people who have uh, been deemed to have good behavior and present the least risk to the community. And people in pre-release benefit from services like work release and can access job opportunities and housing assistance and just generally better prepare to re-enter their communities. However, the problem is that currently in Maryland, there are nine uh, pre-release facilities designated for men and zero for women. You know, Joe, that's really messed up that this is still a problem. Can you talk to me about how pre-release facilities for women would actually help many of our both incarcerated women and our broader community? So the women that we've heard from the, uh, who are currently at the women's prison in Jessup uh, have told us that they just don't feel prepared to reenter uh, their communities and face those challenges. Um, you know, when you get released from prison and come back to the community, you need to have a place to live, a job, access to transportation, childcare, and other resources. And it's really challenging knowing how to navigate different systems to get what you need. So having a pre-release facility for women would help by making sure that they have the resources that they need to be successful upon re-entry and to better provide for themselves and their families. Who are some of the directly impacted partners that, are, that we are working with on this issue? And can you tell us about the important work that they do in their communities? We've got several really great partners uh, who are working together on these issues, including Out for Justice, Maryland Justice Project, and Life After Release. 
All of these groups work on issues related to women exiting the justice system and returning to their communities, both engaging directly at the individual level, as well as advocating to change local and state laws as well. And they're all led and guided by the experiences of directly impacted people. They're doing really important work, and they definitely need our support. So we certainly encourage our listeners to check out their websites as well. And Dustin, you know, related to our criminal legal system, can you tell us about what happens when children are entangled in our criminal legal system and go before the courts? The criminal justice system uh, can be very difficult to navigate, especially in the United States where we really over-criminalize people. And for children, this process can be very scary and intimidating without the proper support. The due process is the process in which the state must respect the legal right of children to remain silent. Those who are most impacted by current policy are students of color, uh, students with disabilities, and particularly black children, because they have the most frequent interaction with law enforcement. This occurs through arrests made in the school, uh, referrals from the school, or just being black within their communities. We're actually working on a bill this year with our Maryland Youth Justice Coalition that will require an attorney be present when children are questioned by law enforcement. The bill will provide more protection for children and their rights, and that more families of children will actually know their rights when they have this contact with law enforcement and know what their rights are. And this will actually help help to prevent the entry into the criminal justice system. And Tony, in a similar vein in our criminal justice system, can you talk to us about people who are currently incarcerated and also people who are formerly incarcerated? What are the what is the current law around their voting rights? People who are formerly incarcerated, once they are released, they are enfranchised. Those folks can vote. They have a full right to vote. For people who are currently incarcerated, there are two categories of people who retain the right to vote, who are still enfranchised. That is people who are being held pretrial. That means they haven't been convicted of any crime yet. But also people who have been convicted, but the most serious offense they've been convicted of is a misdemeanor. Those categories of folks who are behind bars still have the right to vote. In 2016, the uh, General Assembly passed and the governor vetoed and then the General Assembly overrode a bill. (laughs) Yes, thank goodness. uh, That... Uh, would allow for folks to be to have the right to vote immediately upon release. Before that time, before that bill passed, the law at the time was that you had to serve parole and probation. And that was incredibly confusing because uh, folks just didn't really know what their rights are were around voting um, and when they were enfranchised. So this sort of clean break where people, once you're released, you have the right to vote, really made a difference. And I believe uh, uh, upwards of 40,000 Marylanders were enfranchised by that law alone. And Tony, one of the bills that we're working on this session is to expand the ballot to people who are currently incarcerated. Um, how would expanding access to the ballot affect Maryland elections? Sure. So the reform we're looking at would create some system in place in jails and prisons so that people who have the right to vote can actually vote because they have access to ballots. They have information about how to vote, their rights to vote. So that's the reform that we're looking at. Currently in Maryland, there is no system in place for allowing people who are incarcerated to vote. There's no system for getting the ballots in, getting them filled out confidentially, getting them out. That doesn't exist. We are looking to implement such a program so that having the right to vote actually means something if you're incarcerated. Practically, the impact is going to be clear on not only black communities, but especially in Baltimore City. We know that black Marylanders are disproportionately entangled in the criminal justice system. 
30% of Maryland's population is black, but 70% of our prison population is black. So black communities are more than twice represented in the prison population. We also know that a third of the prison population comes from Baltimore City. So I think practically, on, especially on local races in Baltimore City, you could see a real impact if the prison population were allowed to vote um, because they have the right to vote. This has you know major impacts. Like I think in um, San Francisco, when they pass a similar law like this, 90% of the people who are currently incarcerated were able to both vote um, and have their votes counted. That's right. So we fully expect that the voter turnout amongst this population would be high. Uh, and, you know, I think practically the the way that criminal justice is uh, parlayed as an election issue uh, makes it all the more reason for folks who are directly impacted by the criminal justice system to have some say in it. I mean, how many times do we hear politicians platforming on criminal justice reform, and yet they're not practically accountable to the people most impacted by it? So uh, we think this is a, it's a it's a racial justice issue, it's a criminal justice issue, but it's also a voting rights and like good government issue for us to get this done. And Joe, what would you say to our listeners, particularly those who, you know, heard all the issues that we talked about today, they're interested in getting involved, but, you know, they're a little on the fence, they might have a question about how to, they can make a difference. What would, you, what would you say to them? Well, Amber, we're counting on all of our listeners and supporters to get engaged and help us pass these really critical bills. Even if you don't feel directly impacted by some of these issues, I guarantee that they're affecting people in your community. And while we're running around meeting with legislators about all of these bills over and over again, we keep hearing them say that they really want to hear from their constituents, people from their home districts, to know what they think and how these issues are impacting them and their communities. And it's one thing for legislators to keep hearing from us, but they really want to hear from you. So how can people find out a little bit more about our work and how they can get support in talking to their legislators? People should definitely visit our website, aclu-md.org. And on there, you'll find lots of more information, including fact sheets about each of these issues. You can keep up with the latest news and developments and see action alerts about how to get involved. You know, Tony, Justin, Joe, this was a really interesting conversation. I deeply enjoyed it. I learned a lot, um, and I hope our listeners did as well. Thank you, Amber. Thanks, Amber. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. Please be on the lookout for more information about our upcoming Legislative Lobby Day on February 17, 2020. Your leadership is needed to talk with your representatives about the issues mentioned today and other civil liberties issues that are important to you so that we can work together to make a more perfect Maryland. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to rate and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. This show was edited by Afia Irving, and was recorded at Tuck Media in Baltimore, Maryland, and was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.